but invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 130. You can also find it printed for you in your bulletins. Psalm 130. Uh, Many people are familiar with the story of the conversion of John Wesley. On May 24th, 1738, Wesley in London was attending a church service uh, in the afternoon-evening time period. And during that service, he heard somebody uh, reading from Martin Luther's uh, introductory comments about the book of Romans. And Wesley said as he listened to Luther uh, talk about the wonders of uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, he found his heart was strangely warmed. But what most people don't know is that earlier on that day, Wesley was actually attending another service at another church. And as he was at that service, he actually heard Psalm 130 sung as an anthem. In many ways, Psalm 130 prepared Wesley to hear the gospel proclaimed Later in the day, as the Lord drew him to himself, Martin Luther referred to Psalm 130 as one of the four Pauline Psalms or a Psalm of Paul. And even though these Psalms were written many years before Paul lived, Psalm 130 so clearly articulates the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone that it sounds like Paul could have written these words. Listen as we read Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would be at work in these very moments through the Holy Spirit, opening our eyes and helping us to see wonderful things, helpful things, good things from this portion of your word. Help us to be refreshed with the gospel of your grace once again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think of a time when you felt completely helpless, completely and utterly helpless. I've shared a story about that with you before from my own life. Uh, It was a story that involved my wife, Stephanie, and a canoe. It was when Stephanie and I were in college, we were serving as chaperones on a uh, trip, a canoe trip for the high schoolers and the church that we were uh, that we were a part of at that point. Uh, about midday during our canoe trip, we decided to stop for lunch, and so we found a sandbar in the uh, river. And so we pulled all the canoes under the sandbar, and we had a nice lunch. And when it was time to get our canoes back onto the river, uh, we noticed that just downstream from the sandbar, there was this massive tree on the bank of the river 
that had fallen and was halfway submerged in the river. Uh, Because of the tree and because of the strength of the current, there was a strong current that was pulling the water toward the tree right into the midst of the tree with all of these massive branches. So we made note of that to all of the high school students and uh, made sure that everybody was able to push off the sandbar and we came up with a strategy for how they could stay away from the tree. Stephanie and I decided that we would go last so that we could make sure everybody got off okay. And everybody did get off okay and so it was our turn and you can guess what happened. I was in the back of the canoe, which is one of the main steering ways, and I made a few mistakes, and I steered our canoe too close to the bank, and sure enough, the current picked us up, and we went heading straight for the tree. The canoe slammed into the tree, and the front part of the canoe, which I would remind you is where my wife Stephanie was sitting, went underneath the tree... And the canoe kept sliding to the tree, and as I pulled my leg up to brace myself, my leg smashed into the tree, and I was pinned between the tree and the canoe. Eventually, this current was so strong that it pulled the canoe right out from underneath me, and I went under the water and popped out just downstream about 10 or 15 feet from where the tree was. And as I stood up in this four feet of very strong current of water, I looked and I saw Stephanie. She had also gone under the water, but the t-shirt that she had on over her bathing suit had gotten snagged on one of the branches. And she was standing in this water, stuck to this tree, and she couldn't get herself unstuck. It was too dangerous to go under the water because of all of the sharp branches, and so there we were, me 10 to 15 feet away, in some of the strongest current I've ever felt. There's Stephanie, snagged on the branch, and I could do nothing. The other canoes had already left and had gone down the river. They had no idea about our situation, and there we stood. Now, I think it was only a couple of minutes. It seemed like an hour. But eventually, the t-shirt ripped enough that the branch let go, and Stephanie safely slid down the, the, the current away from the tree. And we found the canoe and got all the water out of it and found at least one of the paddles and the rest of our things, and then we caught up with the group. But in that moment, as I was standing there, 10 feet from Stephanie, there was nothing I could do, and I felt utterly helpless. The author of Psalm 130 feels utterly helpless. Completely and utterly helpless. Isn't that what he says? Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. In fact, the Hebrew word here for depths is the word that's often used to describe a deep abyss of water. The psalmist is giving us this picture of drowning in this overwhelming abyss of water. He is helpless and he is crying out. And his situation was so much worse than my situation with the canoe. Let's look at why the author was in the depths. Let's look at how he got out and then let's ask So what? 
what difference does this make for us? So first of all, why was he in the depths? What was making this author feel so helpless? What was causing him to cry out with such distress? Well, you'll notice what it wasn't. Nowhere in this text do we hear that he was having a bad day. Nowhere in the text do we read that he's upset because his financial investments have tanked. Nowhere here in the text do we read that he's anxious because of his current life circumstances. He's not addressing some physical limitation or mental stress or anxiety that he's feeling. He's not talking about dealing with some form of suffering. What is it that has him in the depths? Well, notice he's crying out for mercy, as he says at the end of verse 2, to the voice of my pleas for mercy. His mercy for what? Well, what does he say in verse 3? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. What are the depths? What are the depths that this man is feeling? It is his sin. It is his iniquity that is causing him to feel this separation, this distance from God. It is calling, it is making him to call out in utter helplessness. He understands his sin and his guilt. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I wonder if we have this kind of understanding of our sin. Do we understand the seriousness of our sin? Are we driven to cry out to the Lord God Almighty because we know the seriousness, the depth of our sin? The prophets of the Old Testament often talked about Israel and their sin. There's this interesting passage in Isaiah chapter 59, and there... The Lord is dealing with the sin of his people. And I want you to listen to the severity of the language that we read here. Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Now that sounds like Israel is being accused of some profound sin. What is it that would cause the God whose hand is fully capable of saving and whose ear is fully capable of hearing to say that there is a separation between God and man? What kind of sins has caused God's face to be hidden from his people? What kind of sins would cause there to be defilement of blood on the hands and the fingers of God's people? Well, he goes on to enumerate them. Here's what they are. Lips that have spoken lies. Mouths, tongues that have muttered wickedness. A lack of honesty. Not pursuing peace with others. Not pursuing justice in this world. Now, 
if you're like me, you, you hear this buildup of God talking about the seriousness of the sin. And then they come to the sins that are enumerated and you think, well, those aren't the big ones. Those aren't the really bad ones. I mean, lying, muttering, not being completely honest all the time, maybe not pursuing peace like we should. But, but do you see what we are being told here? God sees these as big sins. Because every sin is a big sin. Even the most small deviation from the perfect standard of holiness, of God's holiness, is a challenge to His sovereign rule and an affront to His justice. We tend to easily dismiss what we think of as our small sins. But all that does is reveal that we have a small and insufficient understanding of the character of the triune God. If we truly understood our sin and the seriousness of our sin from God's perspective, then we would be with the author of Psalm 130 in the depths. Before we get to Romans 3, that we read earlier for our assurance of grace, Paul spends two chapters unpacking the sin that he saw in this world. This is why the author's in the depths. This is, this is what is causing this author to feel utter helplessness, to feel like he is drowning, and to cry out to God. So, how did he get out? How did he get out of the depths? Well, we see three things from the passage. The first thing is that he cried out to God. I mean, that's obvious. It's right there at the beginning of the passage. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. And I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, notice he cries out to God. He cries out to God. The Lord, And you'll notice there that the first Lord is the capitalized Lord. He cries out to Yahweh. He understood that there is an objective standard of holiness, of righteousness. That it is God's standard. And so he knew that he needed to cry out to the one whose standard he had violated. I mean, we see that in verse 3, right? Oh Lord, who should mark iniquities? It's the language... Of being judged, of being held to a standard. We're reminded of what our shorter catechism says in the question answering what is sin? It is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, that's a mouthful. So what does that mean? Any want of conformity to. To want means to lack something. To, to lack conformity to the Word of God. In other words, it is not doing what the Word of God tells us that we are to be doing. But it's also transgression of the law of God, which means that we're not only not doing what we're supposed to be doing, we're also doing the things that we're not supposed to be doing. We're doing sins of omission and commission. This is the standard. The standard is the revealed will of the Lord God Almighty in His Word. And David understood that as well. 
his greatest psalm of confession and repentance, Psalm 51, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And the one we used earlier in our service, Psalm 32, he acknowledged his sin and he confessed it to the Lord. The author of 130 understood that he could not measure up. He fell short of God's standard and he had iniquities against that standard. So he cried out to God because he knew it was God's standard that he had violated. But I want you to notice it's not just that he cried out to God. He also I want you to notice that he cried out. He didn't just sit in despair. He didn't just drown in the depths. He recognized his helplessness and his need to cry out for help against the one against whom he had sinned. And he cried out. The word cry there, it's the word that's used for almost a visceral cry, a loud call or a cry for help. He recognized his, the objective standard and he understood that he had violated it and fallen short of it. And he cried out earnestly to the Lord. And notice again in verse 1, the, one, the end of verse 1, he cries out to Yahweh. He cries out to the God whose name he knew. He cries out to the covenant-keeping, faithful God because he knows it's that God that can bring forgiveness. And so it's really the second thing that we see here that he did. He not only cried out to God, but he reminded himself of what is true. A few weeks ago, we were looking at Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, and they're a different author that one of the sons of Korah, as he was struggling with spiritual dryness of spiritual depression, we, we saw in those Psalms of how he, he would talk to himself and he would tell himself what is true. He would remind himself of what is true. And the author here of Psalm 130 is doing the same thing. What did he remind himself about? Well, he remembered the gospel. Oh, I know we're in the Old Testament, but the gospel is clearly preached in the Old Testament as well. Look at how clearly it is. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Verse seven, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. With you, he says, there is forgiveness. There is steadfast love. There is plentiful redemption. Notice he recognizes that forgiveness comes only from the Lord. It's abundantly clear throughout this psalm. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He understood that forgiveness can come only from the Lord God Almighty. He knew it had to come from the one whose standard had been violated. He knew the help that he needed, the relief that he needed, could come only from the Lord himself. 
Nowhere else. He couldn't turn uh, to, to just trying to live a really good life to get God's forgiveness. He couldn't make all of his sin go away by just pouring himself into his career. He couldn't try to numb it away and forget about it through some kind of an addiction. What he needed could only come from the Lord because it's only the Lord that can forgive our sins. I want you to notice also this forgiveness that comes from the Lord is sufficient. With you, he says, there is forgiveness. With you, there is steadfast love. With you, there is plentiful redemption. Love and forgiveness that does not fail. That is completely sufficient. It is plentiful to cover all of our sins. It has to be sufficient. God's grace, God's forgiveness must be sufficient. Why? Because in verse 8 we're told it is God himself who does it. He himself will redeem Israel, verse 8 says. Now surely the psalmist didn't fully understand what he was writing when he wrote verse 8. But what he understood in part, we now know in full. We know the rest of the story that God himself did come to redeem his people from their iniquities. He came in the person of Jesus Christ and through Jesus' life of perfect love and obedience to the Father and his sacrificial light, death on the cross, every single one of the sins of his people was paid for in full, completely and sufficiently. The author was reminding himself of what is true. He remembered the gospel. But he also remembered that he had to put his hope and his trust in God's promises. Isn't that what we read in verse 5? I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word, I hope. And again down in verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. He, he, he remembers the word of God. He remembers things like, I will be your God and you will be my people. He remembers God saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. He remembers God telling his people over and over again, return to me and receive full forgiveness and acceptance. He reminds himself that he needs to rest and to trust in that hope, the hope of the word of God, the hope of those promises, even when he feels like they can't possibly be true. That's what he's getting at in verses five and six with all of this waiting and these watchmen. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. The picture that he's giving us here is not of some kind of anxious, uncertain wishing. This is not the picture of waiting by the phone for the doctor to call to tell you your diagnosis. The picture that he gives is something very different. It is the picture of night watchmen who are on guard waiting for their shift to end. How sure is it that their shift will end? Well, they know the shift ends because the morning comes. They have no doubt. They're certain. They are sure that the morning is coming. And so the waiting that they are doing is a waiting with true hope. 
The psalmist is reminding himself that in moments when I am tempted to doubt God's promises, when I am tempted to doubt the goodness and the faithfulness and the promises of God that are true and that his forgiveness is sufficient, I once again must put my hope in that which is certain, the word of God. And trust the Lord. So he cried out to God and he reminded himself of what is true. And I want you to notice also one other thing that he did to get out of the depths. He shared with others. That's what's happening in 7 and 8. Notice that his, his voice turns from talking to God and talking to himself to talking outwardly. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This was something that was more than he could just keep to himself. He turns to his fellow believers and he tells them the truth as well. This truth that had made his heart sing and be filled with hope is something that he must share with others. Now, you could read this evangelistically, that he's proclaiming the truth of the gospel to unbelieving people that were a part of Israel. But I think probably it's better to understand it as the author recognizing that he needs the fellowship and the community of God's people. He understood that there was something good. There was something helpful. There was something needful of being with God's people and remembering together the wonderful truth that when we cry out to God, there is forgiveness that is sufficient to cover all our sins. So he cried out to God, he reminded himself of what is true, and then he shared it with others. Let's finish by just considering a few ways that this makes a different difference for us. The first is this. We need to follow the model of the psalmist. We need to understand the seriousness of our sin. We need to cry out to the Lord. We need to remember the gospel and his promise of forgiveness. And we need to put our hope and trust in the word. Now, for some of us, What that means is we need to get a better grasp on the seriousness of our sin. Steering clear of the big sins is not good enough. The smallest departure from God's standard of perfect holiness is all that is needed to send us to hell for eternity. A lustful thought. Gossip. A lack of care for weaker brothers and sisters. Coveting. Not pursuing peace. Stirring up dissension. I was thinking about the Puritans this past week. Puritans were known for taking sin seriously. Often they would talk about the sin beneath the sin. We can think of the sins that we commit, but so often those sins are just the surface level. And the deeper that we would dig into the reason for those sins and the the cause for those sins, we would find that there are sins beneath those sins that go down into the depths of our hearts. Some of us need to see our sin for what it truly is in the eyes of God and cry out to him. Genuine lament and sorrow is appropriate. For others of us, following the model of the psalmist here in Psalm 130 means remembering and believing the gospel. Some of, some of us have an acute sense of our sin 
And we have a tendency to beat ourselves up about it over and over and over again. We have a tendency to live in the depths. To live in despair. To not really believe or to seriously doubt that God could ever forgive someone like me. But do you understand that when you go there, what you are essentially saying is that Jesus' work on the cross wasn't sufficient. That it wasn't enough. That it was lacking something that can't cover even your sin. But with the Lord, there is forgiveness. With the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with the Lord, there is plentiful redemption. God Himself has done the redeeming. So it is certainly sufficient to cover all of our sins. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the good news of the gospel of grace. That in Christ all of your sins are forgiven and you have been declared righteous. Put your hope and trust in the Lord and wait on Him patiently with the full assurance of all of His promises. One of the Puritans that's probably most well known is a man named John Owen prolific writer and pastor. He has a definite deep sense of the depth of his sin. He wrote one of his better known books called The Mortification of Sin. It's an entire treatise on how we are to kill our sin. But Owen had a deep understanding of his sin and the people that he pastored had a deep understanding of his sin, of their sin. And Owen knew that they needed to have an understanding of God's forgiveness. And so as he was looking at Psalm 130, he got to verse four, just the first half of that verse. And he wrote three hundred and twenty three pages on just those six words. Some of you need to meditate deeply on those six words and to believe that it's true because God said that it's true. We need to follow the model of the psalmist. Secondly, we need to fear the Lord. Did you notice that that's what it says at the end of verse four? Look, it's actually very interesting. He says, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, the Hebrew there is even more clear. The Hebrew there is really saying, you have been forgiven in order that God may be feared. For the purpose of fearing the Lord. There's a causation here. You've been forgiven so that you will fear the Lord. The forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ is meant to change us. It is meant to make a difference in us. When we grasp more deeply the full and the sufficient forgiveness that we have for the depths and the totality of our sin, then it should make us fear the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Uh, No, especially the young people, we think about fear. We think about waking up in the middle of the night with a nightmare. It can be scary. We think about being alone in the dark. That's not the, the word fear here. That is not the connotation that comes from it. That's not the sense of it. In the Bible, the fear of the Lord has the sense of respect and reverence and awe. It's a sense of complete trust and even love. A pastor friend of mine puts it this way. Biblical fear of the Lord is not servile, but relational. 
Fear of the Lord doesn't cause us to move away from Him like we are afraid of a dream and we want to wake up and get away from the nightmare. The fear of the Lord draws us to Him. It draws us to our Lord in deeper relationship. Understanding and embracing the gospel should produce a greater love for the Lord and a greater desire for holiness. When our lives are not marked by a slow and steady progression of a hatred for our sin, by a slow and steady progression for a love for the Lord, and a slow and steady progression of a pursuit of lives of holiness, then what it means is is that we aren't really understanding the extent and the depth of God's forgiveness to us. If you're struggling with that, if you're struggling to see growth and holiness and strength to lean against your sin, then you need to get together with God's people. Maybe another brother and sister in Christ, maybe a couple brothers and sisters in Christ, and dig into the sinfulness of sin. To help one another have a better understanding of what it means to have the forgiveness of God completely and sufficiently. And that kind of leads to the last application. And that is we need fellowship with one another. Again, the author went there in verses 7 and 8 as he turned his face to Israel, to the people of God, to his brothers and sisters in belief. And it's a reminder to us as Christians that we need one another. We need to proclaim the truth and God's grace to one another, just like the psalmist was doing. So how are you doing that? Now, I acknowledge it's pretty challenging these days, isn't it? But there are ways that we can figure out on how we are to to gather together with another person, another believer in Christ, or a small gathering of people. It's needed. It's necessary. Whether you're comfortable of having people into your home or gathering together like something with the, the social gathering on Tuesday or visiting one another in your backyards. Maybe getting together with a small group via Zoom. We need the people of God. We need to remind each other of the truth of God's grace. We need to speak it to one another. We need to hear it from one another. We need to follow the model of the psalmist. We need to understand the seriousness of our sin, cry out to the Lord, remember the gospel, remember the promise of forgiveness, and put our hope in the word. We need to fear the Lord, be drawn to him ever close, more closely in relationship, and we need to have fellowship with one another. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for whoever it was that wrote Psalm 130. We thank you for his honesty, for his transparency, for the raw emotion. We also thank you that you gave him an understanding of forgiveness and grace that rivals even what the Apostle Paul would write after Jesus had come. Thank you for Psalm 130. Thank you for all of your word. Fill us with it. Fill our hearts with it today. Fill us with hope. Give us the strength that we need to believe what your word says. And give us the strength that we need to fight hard and to lean against our sin. But Father, also to pursue those things which are pleasing in your sight. Do that for your glory first and foremost, but also for the good of your people and for the building up of your church. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.